So Mark's gospel does not contain some of the some of the details that we find in Matthew and Luke at, at times. And it may not have some of that artistic, linguistic beauty that we find in, in John's gospel, but there's, there's something magnificent about the way God used this man named John Mark. And I would remind you that his story did not begin all that strong. He was a coward. He had turned back from a missionary journey, and yet God, God redeemed him. But there's something beauty, beautiful about the way that God has used him to deliver just such a straightforward story of the life of Jesus Christ. There's, there's something about the way that he just, no nonsense, cuts to the chase that just requires us as the readers to deal with the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And so as we get to the 14th verse in the 6th chapter, we come to the only portion of Mark's narrative that doesn't focus directly on Jesus. You'll remember that last week we talked about Jesus sending out of the 12 apostles as he sent them out to do the same kind of work that he did, to heal the sick, to cleanse the unclean, even to raise the dead, and then to preach the gospel. This morning we come to this text where we find King Herod struggling to deal with what this means for him. Struggling to deal with what is... What is this gospel that's being preached, and what are these people that are going out and preaching it? What does that mean? What does that mean for me? And so, before we turn to the text, there's really three pictures that I want you to I want you to be on the lookout for as we walk through this. Firstly, I want you to notice the picture that Mark is painting for us—a forward-looking picture, a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus Christ in his forerunner. And John the Baptist in his arrest and in his death. I want you to see the picture pointing forward to what awaits the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. Secondly, I want you to see a picture of what happens to a man that does not think rightly about this gospel. The man that does not rightly understand Jesus Christ or his gospel. I want you to see specifically what happens when a man, despite what his own conscience tells him, despite what all the evidence tells him, continues to appease his flesh, continues to try to appease all the people around him. And then lastly, I want you to see a picture of what awaits you as disciples of Jesus Christ. Anyone in this room that would count themselves as a follower, that would desire to commit your life to following after Jesus Christ, I want you to see in John the Baptist the promise of what awaits us in this lifetime. So go ahead and just stand your feet, please, as we turn to the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel. As I said, we'll begin in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared, feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. From when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king to the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, it is, it is tempting and always easy to come to passages like this and associate ourselves with the heroes. We like to believe that uh, we're the good guys in the story. Father, as we come to your truth this, this morning, Father, would you, would you open our eyes to the realities of sin? Would you confront us in our own sin? Would you encourage us in our efforts to avoid sin? Father, would you, would you speak to us the truth that we need this morning? Knowing, Father, that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, it would all just be gibberish to us. For it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So we're going to hear about King Herod all throughout the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. You're going to hear about King Herod. And it can get a, can get a little bit tricky. Because unraveling the Herod family tree, it can be a li little bit like working a Rubik's Cube. It can be difficult in part because Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great, had ten wives. In addition to that, his family tree doesn't always fork the way that it should. And so when you're dealing with families and incest, it can be really difficult to, to unravel who this is. And so if we're not careful in understanding which King Herod are we studying, you can, you can fall into this trap of believing that perhaps Herod served for something like a hundred years and he died three or four times. And so... When we, when we hear of King Herod, immediately our mind goes to Herod the Great. That's the one that I referred to, the one that had, the one that had ten wives. But really, the Herodian dynasty, this political power that was this family, it began with his father, Antipor. So Antipor was an Edomite. He was, he was from the family of Esau, okay? Now, you're, you'll remember now that there were two children. There were two twins, Jacob and Esau. And it's, it's, it's beautiful when you come to these Old Testament passages and you think, well, what's the point in these ge genealogies? Why are we told about these blessings and these curses? Why do we care about all this? Because of this. Because what you see is that God's word always comes true. And that there are great consequences to the actions taken of men. And so what we know then is that this man, this Edomite, because he had come from the family of Esau, he was not at his root a worshiper of Yahweh. He was not Jewish. Although the Edomites were told to, um, to, to dwell in a place not far from Israel, and although the Israelites were told to live at peace, with the Edomites, and they made some efforts. You'll remember that as Moses and his people were heading towards the Promised Land. They had attempted to pass through Edom, and they wouldn't let them. There was hostility there going all the way back to Jacob and Esau. 
They were, they were told to live at peace, and yet they were always at conflict. There was always this, there was always this grudge between them until sometime between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New when the Israelites overtook the people of Edom and they forced them to convert to Judaism. So you'll find that there are people, there are Edomites like um, Herod's father, Antipas, you would, uh, Antipas, excuse me, you will find that there are people that count themselves as Jews, but they're not following after God. They don't care anything about the law. Frankly, they don't care anything about the people that follow after the law. But this man named Antipas, he had, he had learned to play the game very well. He learned to play the game of, of appeasing the Jewish people and of appeasing the people of Israel and playing the game of working towards Rome. And so he had found himself in a position where he was a ruler over much of the social work that happened there in the land of Israel. This was him, and he, he had great hopes for his son, his, particularly his son, his second son, Herod the Great. He had a design that his son, Herod the Great, would rise to even higher position than him, and it worked. As Herod the Great, he was, he was made governor over all of Judea. Eventually, he was named king of the Jews. And one trip to Jerusalem, one trip to Rome, excuse me, as he was asking for more power, Rome decided, we're going to make you the king of the Jews. Now go back and win that title for yourself. As he went, and he waged a, a military battle, and he did. He took control of Judea, and his job then was to keep peace in the land because he served at Rome's goodwill. Rome, if they decided that a king wasn't doing what he had called him to do, they were going to come, and they were going to, raid, they were going to, they were going to rain down thunder on this leader probably death, at very least exile. And so his job was to keep peace in the land while keeping Rome happy. And one of the ways that Herod the Great sought out to do this was through some building projects. He built some ports. He built a, he built a fortress. He built his own palace. But the thing that he, that he was most proud of was his expansion of the Temple Mount and his remodeling of the temple. The temple there in Jerusalem, obviously, that was a focal point for Jewish life. And so Herod came in and he expanded it. He, he, he enlarged it. He made it much more beautiful. And so we, we find here that King Herod was trying to, Herod the Great, he was trying to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people. But the problem was he was an evil and wicked man. There was nobody safe when King Herod became troubled. Whenever Herod the Great thought that anybody stood between him and power, they were going to lose their life. This included family. This included religious leaders. This included in-laws. This included even his own children. And yet, despite his vicious nature, despite the fact that he was willing to take anybody's life at the drop of a hat, he continued to have some people that followed after him. These people were called Herodians. You remember, earlier in Mark's Gospel, we talked about how the Pharisees who were the religious leaders, and the Herodians, those that followed after the family of Herod, they were at conflict until they found one unifying thing, one unifying purpose, and that was the destruction of Jesus Christ. So this was the family of Herod. This was, this was his line. Now, at the birth of Jesus Christ, we see some of, some of Herod the Great, perhaps his, his greatest evil. You remember that as the wise men came from afar, and they said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Wait a minute, I'm the king of the Jews. And so he sought to kill this child. You remember then that as Jesus and his family were warned, they fled into Egypt. And then Herod then sent men to kill every male child that was under the age of two years old, not knowing that Jesus and his family had fled Bethlehem. So then it wasn't until King Herod's death in about 4, uh, 4 AD that they came back. It wasn't until King Herod, excuse me, 4 BC that, it, that, the, that, that the family came back. They returned from Egypt. And so what we find then is that after Herod died, he divided the kingdom up. There was no one son that was fit that was suited to take over all of Israel and so what we find then is that Rome allowed him to divide this up between three of his sons and one of his daughters so that no one of his children was truly a king over all of Judea one of those sons was named Herod Antipas that is King Herod that we read about this morning 
He was, his fourth, he was a son to his fourth wife. She was a Samaritan woman. Her name was Maltrace. She was a Samaritan. So you've got this man named Herod Antipas that was referred to as King Herod this morning. He's not really a king, for one. He's a tetrarch. He was given control over a quarter of the land. He wasn't king over all the land. And yet the Jews and many people, including Mark, they referred to him as King Herod. He was half Edomite half Samaritan, and yet called himself a Jew, although he cared nothing about the law. He cared nothing about serving God. So he was more of a governor than a king, despite the fact that they called him king. And specifically, his area was Galilee, the place where Jesus was doing most of his miracles and most of his teachings up to this point. Now hold on to that. I know that feels a lot like school. It's going to matter, okay? So hold on to that. That's who we're reading about here when we see King Herod. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. We're not told exactly what it is that Herod Antipas heard. We don't know exactly what it is that he heard, but we have to assume based on the placement within this gospel, based on his reaction, that what he heard was about the works of Jesus Christ. He heard about the healings. He heard about the cleansings. He heard about the preaching of the gospel. And then that he had heard that he sent out these men to do the same kind of work. So when you've got these 12 men plus their leader going around talking about the kingdom of God coming from heaven, you know that's going to catch his attention. Probably, we have to imagine, that Herod Antipas, he had heard stories from his father, Herod the Great, about his desire to kill this king of the Jews that had come. And so this would have caused great consternation on his part. He would have been anxious to know who is this man and what is he doing. And so what we find here is that people, they began to guess as to who this Jesus was. Some said John the Baptist, who has been raised from the dead. That is why this miraculous powers are at work within him. So they were speculating. They began by saying that he was, perhaps he was John the Baptist. And I need to remind you, as we've walked through this gospel, people that try to figure Jesus out almost always land in a bad place. Our call is not to figure Jesus out. Our call is to heed his words and to do what he says, to bow down and worship. These people that demand all the answers, that try to figure it all out, it always lands them in a bad place. And for these people, they believe that he was John the Baptist. And so we haven't heard anything about John the Baptist since his arrest back in Mark 1.14. We don't know what's happened to him if we're reading through this gospel for the first time. But now at this point, we learn that he's dead. We learn that he's died, and some people think that he's raised from the dead. Now, this seems to be a strange conclusion, though, because we've seen Jesus and John the Baptist together. They were cousins. They were only months apart. In addition to that, they were there together at the baptism of Jesus. And so it would be strange to believe that Jesus was somehow John the Baptist raised from the dead. In addition to that, John the Baptist, Scripture tells us, John 10, 41, that John did no sign. He had done no miraculous works. I guess if you get raised from the dead, it's not unreasonable to believe that you're going to be given some miraculous power. But they believe that this surely must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Verse 15, but others said, no, he is Elijah. So if Jesus resembles John the Baptist, it's only natural that they would have made connections to Elijah. When we introduced ourselves to John the Baptist back at the beginning of this gospel, you remember the connections that we saw there. You remember that at the very end of the Old Testament, we read the prophet Malachi. God had spoken through him, Malachi 4, 5. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that as Israel, looking forward to the return of Christ, looking forward to the, to the, to the day of the Lord, when God would make all things right, not knowing that Christ would come, they were looking forward to this one. Elijah, this great prophet, this one that had done miraculous works, even raising a boy from the dead, they looked forward to him as the forerunner for the day of the Lord. And then after 400 years of silence, this guy comes, this last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. And he came and he would have resembled him, not just in his message of repentance, but in the way that he dressed with camel hair and a leather belt, in the places that he hung out, out in the wilderness, in his diet of wild honey and locusts. He resembled the prophet Elijah in a great number of ways, and so people continually thought, this must be Elijah returned. And they were right, he was. 
we're going to read in a minute that Jesus says, this is, if you'll believe it, if you'll understand it, if you'll receive it, he is Elijah, but not the way you're thinking. This isn't a resurrection of Elijah. This is one that comes in the spirit of Elijah. This is the forerunner that comes before the day of the Lord. Jesus said this, Matthew 11, 9 through 15. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, whom will prepare for you a way. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So he was. So that if we see that Jesus reminded people of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was coming in the spirit of Elijah, it's natural that they would assume that Jesus was Elijah. And then some others said, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And Jesus did prophesy. He said, I came only to, get, to speak the words that my Father has given me. He told, told us that he was a prophet that was rejected in his hometown. He's the fullness of God's revelation. Scripture tells us that God had spoken through the prophets of old, but now in the last days he speaks to his son Jesus Christ. So Jesus was, in fact, a prophet, but he was much more. And so these men were grasping at straws. Now, it reminds us of an interaction that Jesus had with Peter. We're going to see that when we come to Mark 8, when it's Jesus this time asking. He's asking Peter, who do people say that I am? And here was the response. Peter says, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. The same rundown, but I want you to notice the difference. Because Peter has been with Jesus, because he has sat at his feet and done what he told him to do. Because Jesus has called him aside and spoken the plain, straightforward truth to him. Because he has not hidden that light under a bushel. Here is the conclusion that Peter comes to. And he said to him, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. What is the difference? It's that Peter has been with Jesus Christ. Peter was called by Jesus Christ. It's God that has revealed this to him, that has shown him that he is the Christ. What we see in Herod is something very different. Herod Antipas couldn't recognize this. And here's where he comes to. The conclusion for Herod is, he must be John whom I beheaded. That's his determination. He says, no, he's not Elijah. No, he's not one of these other prophets. I don't know anything about the Christ. He must surely be John that I beheaded. And so we know this now. We know the way that John died. He didn't just die of old age. He didn't just die of the flu. He died because Herod chopped his head off. You can see why he'd be worried. If somebody comes back from the dead, preaching a gospel about the kingdom of God, preaching repentance, traveling around, doing things, doing works that have never been seen before, preaching with authority that has never been seen before, and your estimation is he's a dude whose head you chopped off, that's a problem. This is worse than a telltale heart. Talk about your sins coming back to haunt you. He would have been terrified. This is the kind of stuff they write in horror movies. And so why did, John, why did Herod have John killed though? Why did he have his head chopped off? He tells us that, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So this family is a mess, right? So Herod Antipas, he was married to a woman named Phasalus, okay? The reason that he had married her was her father was king of a kingdom to the east. His name was Aretas IV. 
You married, you married people back then for political power, right? For, for reasons of strength. And so he, he had married this woman, but apparently he wasn't all that in love with her. So one summer, he takes off and he goes to Rome to visit his brother, Herod Philip. Now there's a couple of Philips. Again, this family tree is difficult. I spent many hours this week trying to untangle it. But one of his brothers, one of his half-brothers named Herod Philip. Herod Philip was married, right? He, first off, he was, the, he was his half-brother by um, Aristobulus. Uh, so, okay, so he's married. He's married to this woman that is the daughter of Aristobulus, and her name is Herodias. You follow me now? So you've got Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee. You've got Herod Philip that lives in Rome. You've got Aristobulus, their other half-brother, but don't worry, he's not around anymore because his dad strangled him for treason. Okay, so you've got these three half-brothers. You've got the two half-brothers that are together hanging out in Rome. He's married, uh, Herod Philip is married to Herodias, who is Aristobulus's daughter. That's his niece, by the way, if you're trying to connect this. She was eight, he was 20 whenever they got engaged. Are you with me? Okay, my head hurts. Okay, awkward family reunions, okay? So you've got, you've got, you've got three half-brothers. One of them is married to his brother's daughter, the other one is in love now. He comes and he falls in love with his brother's wife, who's his other brother's daughter. His sister-in-law also his niece. Herod Antipas falls in love with her, and he convinces her to leave her husband. He's going to leave his wife, and they're going to be married together. And she agrees. Apparently, she's in love with Herod Antipas as well. This is clearly against probably every law. I don't think you have to go to Jewish law to determine this is wrong, right? But if you read Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, it says you don't marry your, you don't marry your brother's wife doesn't even mention your niece, but that's creepy too. Don't do that either. And so that's why when we read this scripture, it refers to Herodias as Philip's wife and not Herod's wife because this was an illegitimate marriage. This was not a marriage that would have been recognized by any decent society, much less God's people. And John the Baptist is somebody that was never one to shy away from confronting sin. He's punching this dude in the mouth. He's continually calling him out. Now, we don't know how he gains an audience with an important man like Herod Antipas, but he does. He's able to have, a, have an audience with him, and he's continued to call him. This is the guy that called the, uh, the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He wasn't going to back down from him. So he's consistently calling him, saying it's not right. It's not right that you're married to your, brother's, to your brother's wife or your brother's daughter or anybody else in your family. Go get a normal wife, and he doesn't like this. He's got to react to this. And so what does he do? He throws him in prison. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So Herodias wasn't satisfied. As long as John was alive, it was a testimony against their sin. As long as he was alive, he was probably running his mouth. She didn't want him to be in prison. She didn't want him to be alive. She wanted the man to be dead. But Herod wouldn't allow it because he was afraid. It says specifically that he was afraid because he knew that John was a righteous and holy man. Dear friends, you need to understand that the unrighteous always fear the righteous. It's a terrifying thing. We read throughout Scripture when heroes of the faith, men like Isaiah, men like the Apostle John, they come into contact with the perfectly holy God and they fall down on their face like dead men. Now look, the gap between Isaiah and John and God is infinitely greater than the gap between John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. But the truth remains Unholy people cannot stand to be in the presence of someone that they find to be holy. And he knows this. He knows that John isn't evil. You see this. He's not saying that John is evil. He's not saying that John is deceived. He's not saying that John is crazy. He knows that he is a righteous and a holy man, and he's terrified. Do you remember back when we talked about the gospel being a stumbling block, about it being an offense? And we talked about the reality that 
The hope is that as we shake the dust from our sandals, as we leave a place that rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we hope that people would move beyond offense and perhaps to fear, and beyond fear and perhaps to faith or to hope and to repentance. What we see with this man, with Herod Antipas, is he has moved beyond uh, offense. He has moved beyond offense and he's moved to fear, but he stayed there. He stayed there. He didn't move to hope. He didn't move to repentance. He didn't move to faith. So as a result of this, he keeps this man locked up. He keeps him locked up in prison, and he continues to meet with him. Apparently, there was something intriguing about the message. There are plenty of people in this world that they have no desire to come to faith. They have no desire to obey Jesus Christ. They have no, no desire to know God, but they're intrigued by the message. It's interesting to them. They're looking for something to tickle their ears, and so he continues to go back to him. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. So we can only assume, knowing John the Baptist, the way we know John the Baptist, that the message didn't change. He didn't change the message because he was in chains. Over and over and over again, he would have been preaching the gospel, continuing to call him to, call him to repentance, to undo this unholy union that he had entered into. And it says that Herod Antipas was greatly perplexed. The King James translation says that he did many things. I think these go together. He was perplexed. He was confused. He couldn't rightly understand. He was a loss, and he did many things. He stayed busy. This is a picture of a frantic man. Running around, his own conscience is crying out against him, and so he's staying busy. You do that. I do that. When sitting still too long brings our sins to, our for- to the forefront, when sitting still too long allows us to hear the voice of God calling us to repent and turn away, we just get busy. So that's what we see with this man. He's frantic and he's torn. He knows this man has done no, no, done no wrong. That's why he won't let him, his wife kill him. He knows that he's done no wrong, and he knows that he's telling truth. He knows that he's speaking truth about this marriage. So what does he do? He tries to compromise. He tries to appease his wife. He tries to shut up his conscience, but he doesn't want to do the most evil thing in taking this man's life. So his conscience won't quit wrecking shop on him. He's a mess. And you realize that non-believers have a conscience too. It's a gift from God. It's one of his common graces. It's one of the greatest ways that God restricts evil in this world. It's the reason that we can say that men are totally depraved, that they're totally wicked, that they're totally depraved, but not utterly depraved. You see, that we are in our beings. Every bit of who we are, our mind, our will, our emotions, our thoughts are constantly evil. It is impossible to please God. It is impossible to know God. It is impossible to honor God in our natural and fallen state. Totally depraved. And yet still... Because God has written his moral law on our very hearts, we're not as evil as we could be at every moment. You understand the difference? We're talking about breadth versus depth. That every bit of who I am and every bit of what I touch, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, it is sin. And yet I'm not always acting in the most sinful manner. I'm not always acting in the most evil manner. It's a way that God restricts. That's why this world is livable. If every non-believer acted in the most evil possible way, we couldn't survive here. We would all be dead by this point. And so one of the ways that God restricts evil in this lifetime is by giving men a conscience. And yet the conscience, it can be drowned out. It can be dulled. We don't always respond to that. We see that here. He's staying busy to try to quiet that voice. Because surely what his conscience was crying at him is, this man is righteous and he is holy and is to be let go. And if he is righteous and he is holy, then his message must be true. And I need to respond to it. And so he's compromising. He's trying to become dull to his conscience. This is truly the man that we see in Romans 1. He's become a fool because of his own sinful desires. 
Because he cannot stand to come into the light because his ways are dark, because his ways are evil. So he keeps the man. He doesn't do the right thing. He does a lot of things, but he doesn't do the right thing. He doesn't repent. He doesn't release this man. And it reminds us of Pontius Pilate. As we look forward to Jesus Christ, this is, of course, a picture pointing forward to the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We see him with the same, Pontius Pilate, with the same dilemma. He knows that Jesus has done no wrong. He finds no fault in him. He wants to let the man home, let, let the man go. But he knows that this crowd is not going to stand for this. He knows that Rome is going to find out about it. And so just like Herod trying to appease his wife, Pontius Pilate tried to, uh, tried to appease the mob because he's a coward. It's a picture of what it means to be a coward, to know the right thing to do, but to let influences around us, whether it's somebody as close to you as your wife and cousin and sister-in-law or a crowd. So we, we see that playing out of these men, and, and, we, and we see those, these two men coming together again at the crucifixion. You'll remember that, that Herod was the one that was there, that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. He found out that Herod was here, and he found out that Jesus was a Galilean. I'll, I'll read about it in Luke 23, 6 through 9. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when, he, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see a sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. What we see here is that Pilate's a coward too. He's trying to pass the buck, and so he sends him away to Herod. This is Herod Antipas. He was in town for the Passover, and so he sends him away to Herod Antipas. He says, what do you make of this guy? And Herod was anxious to see him, maybe anxious to make sure he wasn't really John, raised from the dead, maybe anxious because he just wanted to see a sign or a wonder. Who knows what? But he comes into contact with him, and he's excited about this. And so he speaks to him. He asks him many questions, and Jesus won't reply. In part to fulfill prophecy, that he would go silently before those that were his accusers. He would not make answer for himself. But dear friends, those last words, they need to send a chill up your spine. He made no answer. Herod Antipas had had the greatest man ever born among women. The last Old Testament prophet in prison for some time, and he had talked to him. For over a year, he had met with him. He had heard this gospel, surely. He knew that he was a righteous man, and he walked away perplexed. Not in faith, not in repentance. He walked away perplexed, and he kept himself busy. So he didn't have to reckon with the message that this man had preached to him. Then sometimes later, he finds out about another man doing the same kind of things, preaching the same kind of gospel, but performing works that had never been done. And he isn't like Jesus' family. He doesn't accuse Jesus of being crazy. He isn't like the Pharisees. He doesn't accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul. He knows that he is a righteous and a holy man. So he goes to him hoping to see a sign, asking him many questions. Again, still missing it. Still not dealing with his own sin. Still not dealing with his own separation between him and God. And so he asked many questions to Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't speak because the time for speaking was over. Herod Antipas had chosen his path. Dear friends, be careful how you hear. We always assume that there's going to be another chance, another opportunity, another day, another sign. You need to recognize that the next time you come into contact with this Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, it may be when he stands in judgment. It may not be with him extending an opportunity of repentance to receive salvation in his, in his name. You don't know when the last time you're going to hear the gospel is. You don't know when your last opportunity to turn in faith is going to, going to come. 
For Herod Antipas, he had hardened himself to the point that the next time he comes, at, comes into contact with Jesus, the Christ, he gets no answer. Nothing but silence. I've got to imagine that in a room this size, in a group this size, there are some of you that have heard this gospel of Jesus Christ hundreds, thousands of times. And you're interested, you're intrigued. Maybe you're a little bit perplexed. Maybe you just stay busy trying desperately not to make eye contact with me lest you have to feel the weight of this. You think you're going to get right tomorrow when all the stars align. I'm going to really respond to him. More than just lip service this time, I'm really going to give my life to Jesus Christ. That day may never come. This today may be your very last opportunity to hear this gospel. For him it was. So he was met with absolute silence. Doing many things. Dear friends, I'm no John the Baptist. The same gospel that he preached, I preached to you today. And I know the discomfort that this causes. I know some of you have brought guests today and you're wishing I'd just shut up and move on. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod throws a party. It's, a, it's either, it, it's, it's interpreted here, a birthday, birthday party. It wouldn't have been uncommon for kings, for tetrarchs, for rulers, for governors to throw parties for themselves to commemorate either their birthday or the day when they took office, the day when they took control. But the, the folks smarter than me say that this was his birthday, and this would have been a real throwdown. This would have been the kind of party everybody wanted to be invited to and everybody would have been talking about for some time. The leading men of Galilee, surely some Jewish men, some Herodians, some people that, that wanted to follow after them. And in addition to that, though, it, was, it would have been noblemen and generals and just the who's who of Galilee. They would have all been there for this party. This would have been, this would have been, a, been a ruckus event. This, we can imagine the wine would have been flowing. This was probably not a family friendly. There was probably not a pinata at this event. This would have been a this would have been a, a party that you didn't want your kids to come to. Verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So Herodias had a daughter named Salome with Philip. So this would have been Antipas' stepdaughter and second cousin. And, and the, the language that's used here, the Greek word that's used here, thagatros, it's, it's the same word that's used for Jairus' uh, 12-year-old daughter. So we're, we're talking about a young girl, maybe, a, maybe a, almost a woman, that comes in and she dances. And you don't need to be thinking about a ballerina here. I don't think the people were lining up to two-step with her. This was something grotesque. This was something, something sexual, lascivious. It says that he was greatly pleased, as were all the men. She was there and she was, she was flaunting her femininity for these men. And it was, it was pleasing to these drunkards. It was exciting to them. So greatly pleased was he that he asked the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. This, this reminds us of in, in the Old Testament when we see King Xerxes and Queen Esther and he's greatly pleased with her and he offers her up to half of the kingdom. Now this is hyperbole. He wasn't literally going to give her half the kingdom. But the difference with Herod, it's called King Herod here, that's not really a king. He had no kingdom to give. He served on behalf of Rome. This wasn't his to give away. He was just running his mouth. 
He was showing her, though, how pleased he was. And he was showing off in front of the men that were, the men that were around him. I mean, he's feeling good. He's full of wine. He's apparently worked up by whatever this girl has done. And so in order to show off to his friends, he's telling her, look, whatever you want. He was going to regret that pretty quickly. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? See, when your mother is as vicious as this woman named Herodias, when your mother is despiteful, you're going to go to her before you make any decisions. Can you imagine living in that household? Terrified of making a misstep? knowing the wrath that's going to rain down on you if you disobey your mother, if you dishonor your mother in any way. And so she goes to her mother, and she says, what should I ask for? Not a parcel of land, not some gold, not a pony. What is it that I'm going to ask for? And she, te- and she tells her, the head of John the Baptist. We can only imagine that for the last year, Herodias has been waiting for this moment. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to estimate that she probably sent her daughter in here. She sent her daughter in here to expose herself in this way so that she could capitalize on this exact opportunity. She had not forgotten. Her sins cried out to her too loudly, and she was going to take whatever steps she needed to take, no matter how evil, to quiet up the one that reminded them of their sin. Dear friends, I cannot, I cannot relate to this strongly enough. As my own sins cry out to me from my past, as my own sins continue to haunt me in the night, I find myself at times that I will do any level of evil to quiet them. Not just from other people finding out. Not just from the world. I I try to keep a short list of confessed sins before you guys. I try to come in here often and tell you to allow this to be your, I don't know, once a week reminder. I'm not a good dude. If you knew the things that I had said, if you knew the things that I had done, if you knew the things that I had thought, you would not want to be my friend. But still those things haunt me, even as I confess them before men, even as I seek to make them right with those that I have offended. My own sins come against me in the night, and they just churn and churn and churn because I don't believe in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, apparently. I don't believe that I've truly been washed clean. I don't believe that his death could really be enough for my sins. Well, in the case of a man like Herod, in the case of a woman like Herodias, they weren't forgiven. They should have been haunted by their sins. Wrath did await them in the next life. And so as a result of that, they had to take care of the one that reminded them of that sin. Every second that John the Baptist was alive, it was a reminder of their sin and the punishment that was going to come upon them. And he came immediately, and she came immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Can you imagine those words even coming out of the mouth of a little girl? We use that phrase, right? Somebody's head on a platter. Literally the head on a platter. I don't watch these grody videos online where like these terrorists will behead somebody. I don't want to see that, nor do I want to see that. I can't even imagine. We pass over this, right? It's just one sentence, right? John's head on a platter. Can you imagine? There was literally a party full of men, drunken men, grotesque men, sinful men, and in walks a little girl and says, I want the head of a righteous and holy man on a platter, and they do it. What does that even look like? What size platter do you get? Do you ever use that platter again? This is where sin leads. This is where a desire to cover up sin leads. This is where living a twisted, twisted, mangled up life leads. Guys, I'm not lying to you when I tell you that I spent hours trying to understand the family of Herod because it is so messed up. And I still mess it up, by the way. I'm going to try to fix it by the 11 o'clock hour. I stumbled through some of that because it's still, after all those hours, it's still such a mess. 
And there's some of us in this room that you look back in your past and there's just a tangled mess. I'm the world's worst fisherman. I don't know if you knew that about me because I don't like to fish all that much. But I, can, I could take like one of those cheap Walmart fishing things and I can make a bird's nest out of it, even the push button ones. Like I can just wreck it. And then you got to hand it to somebody who knows what they're doing to undo the nest, right? To undo the mess. And maybe our lives look just like that. So this girl asked for the head of an innocent, a righteous, a holy man on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. He didn't want to do it. Just like Pilate, he didn't want to do it. He knew that he didn't deserve to die. He knew that it was evil to have him, have him killed. He was sorry. He was exceedingly sorry. But he could have looked at the girl at that moment and said, I am sorry. I couldn't. I can't give you this. I can't kill a righteous man. I offered you something that wasn't mine to give. Dear friends, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. We should uphold our oaths, even if it's painful to us. But there's never a justification for sin, much less murder. That's why we've got to be very, very careful about the oaths that we take, about the promises that we make. We need to think long and hard about the promises that we've made to people around us. So easy to shoot off at the mouth and make these promises knowing, I couldn't keep this if they called in the chip. Well, that's what he had done, but instead he wasn't going to back down because of his oath. And the guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. He didn't want to back down. He was too worried about his own reputation. And so he upheld his oath. Just as with Jesus, the death of John the Baptist. His life was taken by a puppet of Rome, a cowardly man. Someone that gave in to the demands of the mob or of his wife. Or of his own pride, of his own flesh. As a result of that, he did this evil thing that he knew wasn't going to be done. He was afraid to stand strong in the face of this. We don't know what he was more afraid of. Was he more afraid of his wife? Probably some of that. Was he more afraid of his own reputation? Of being dishonored before these people? And so they demanded it. He was going to give it. You need... That's poor Dottie. You cannot appease evil. You cannot appease evil. It is never satisfied. Its thirst is never quenched. We don't tiptoe with it. We don't play with it. We don't try to give it just a little bit and hope that it goes away. There is no appeasing evil. There is no satisfying evil. And you need to recognize here that the villains in these stories, both in Pontius Pilate and in Herod Antipas, you need to recognize these, these villains, they don't have to be inherently evil. They just have to be cowards. They just have to refuse to do the hard thing. We think that the greatest evils in this lifetime, it wakes up with some dude waking up, looking at himself, and twisting his mustache in the, in the mirror while he does a <laughs> as he goes out and does evil to destroy the world. That's not the way it works. It's a bunch of dudes that think they're going to go do good. But then when they come into contact with someone that is righteous and is holy, and they feel the pressures of this world of sin and pride and evil men among them. They refuse to do the hard thing. Cowards. It is no reason, that, it is no surprise that we are told in Scripture that cowards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is such a tempting sin to distrust God's promises, to distrust that we will always be blessed for doing what is right, that curse comes as a result of sin. So as a result of that, we try to tiptoe around with evil, and we try to placate evil. We try to appease the mob, and then we find ourselves in the villains of some of the worst stories ever written. 
And immediately the king set an ex- sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Again, I can't even imagine the scene, but they did. You see here the first Christian martyrs. He loses his life. Separated his head from his body right here at this moment. And dear friends, I need you to understand, John would not take a word of it back. I can guarantee you when that man walked in with that sword ready to do that thing, John was probably still preaching the gospel of that, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven, even to the executioner in that moment. And you need to understand that if you count yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, you too will die. It may not be in the same way. It may not be at the hands of a cowardly Roman soldier. It may not be because of a jealous wife. It may not be because of a tangled mess like this. But you need to understand that if God in heaven would not spare the greatest man ever born to women, if God in heaven would not spare his only begotten son, you need to count your life as gone. Gone. So that from the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ and commit to follow after him, that every day after that is gravy. You've been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in you. That you are a, you are a, a, a living, breathing testimony to him and to his gospel, and you're a tool to be used up and wrung out completely and totally and be willing to lay down your life at, at every moment. At every moment in any given day. But here's where that gets tricky. Because we all play out in our minds a scenario like this, right? ISIS comes in, they come with machetes, they come with guns, they put you up against a wall, they say, denounce Jesus Christ or you're going to die, and you'll stand strong. I, I would believe, I believe that of the, those of you in this room that count yourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, I believe that you would, because that's too obvious. And Satan walks right up to your face and says, denounce Jesus Christ or die, I believe that you would stand strong. But you need to recognize that's not what he was calling John to do. You see this. John didn't lose his head because he was called to say that Jesus wasn't the Christ. John didn't lose his head because he was called to to, to praise Satan or to walk away from God or to give up his faith. John died because he spoke the truth. Because he called men to repent. Because he he confronted sin in the lives of powerful men. That's a whole lot harder. Because it's real easy to say that's not my problem. Not my monkey, not my circus. I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm not going to confront sin. I'm not going to speak out. I'm just going to keep my head down and serve God in my own quiet way over here. That's why John lost his head, because he wouldn't do that. And the commitment like that, it begins in a place like this, where you feel kind of safe, kind of cozy. You commit to yourself that, look, I'm going to do the next right thing whenever the next right thing comes, whatever that looks like. I don't care what the cost is. Whatever the next right thing that God sets in front of me is, I'm going to do that thing, and I'm going to allow him to worry about the consequences. I'm going to trust that I'm going to be blessed as a result of my obedience. We see that in his life. And then, as his disciples heard of it, they came, and they took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. Like Joseph of Arimathea coming and taking the body of Jesus Christ with the disciples and burying him, they cared for him. Dear friends, when you lose your head, we will care for you. It's one of the beauties of being in a church like this. I don't say that facetiously. We will care for you. You probably aren't going to get your head chopped off, literally. We will care for you. We will come alongside you. You remember last week, we we read from Ecclesiastes where it talked about how it's better that two go out together so that they can lift each other up. 
so they can lighten each other's burdens, so they can encourage each other when they're down. That's part of the beauty of what we do as a church. So that one of you is facing one of these type moments, John the Baptist type moments, we can come alongside you and urge you, exhort you, push you, encourage you from God's word to continue on. Trusting that you would do the same for us when our day came. And dear friends, your day's coming. If you look around and you think your day's never going to come, how can you believe you're really following after Jesus Christ? That's how it ended for Jesus. That's how it ended for John the Baptist. How it ended for every one of the apostles. How do you count yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ while trying to hold on to the things of this life? One foot in the camp and one foot out of the camp. It simply doesn't work. So we see that they, they came and they, they cared for his body. I hope that you've seen these three pictures in this text. I hope that you see a little bit of yourself in each one of these three pictures. I hope that you see your salvation and your hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That picture is painted in John the Baptist. I hope that you see some of your sin and your cowardice. I see my own in the life of somebody like Herod Antipas. But then I hope that you see encouragement in the life of John the Baptist. I hope that it puts some steel in your spine. I hope that it causes you to commit that you're going to follow after Jesus Christ no matter what the consequences. You're not going to allow the pressures of this world, the evil of this world, to cause you to try to, try to equivocate, try to backpedal, try to, try to appease. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that um, despite the fact that we are a whole lot more like King Herod than we are John the Baptist, that you have yet still chosen to save us. We thank you, Father, that as we stand here in this room today, we continue to hear your words, your voice, calling us to faith and to repentance, that you've not yet gone silent. But Father, we recognize that we are not guaranteed another hearing. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are not guaranteed one more second of this life. And so we can't sit around and wait. We can't wait till all the ducks get in a row. We can't wait till we get it all figured out. And so, Father, my prayer is that we would not be a people that is perplexed, not be a people that's just busy doing things, that we would be a people that is busy sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ and doing whatever it is that he says, following him wherever, we, wherever he goes, and pledging to lay down our very lives if that's what it takes, that others may come to hear and believe and receive his gospel. Father, as we do the thing that we've been created to do now, if we seek to... As we seek to bring glory to Jesus Christ, as we gather together as his people, we pray that the words we sing would be pleasing. We pray that he would be glorified. We pray that we would feel your presence in this room and that we would be changed as a result of it. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.